It's a jungle out there in the world of enterprise technology. That's why we launched Guerrilla Guides, short books that help you navigate the technology landscape. Now we're diving even deeper in our new podcast series, Inside the Guide, where you'll get to hear directly from leaders creating the future of tech. I'm James Green, partner at Actual Tech Media, and I'll be your host. Welcome to the show. Now let's go Inside the Guide. Hi, everybody, and welcome back for the third and final part in this three-part series where we're investigating how Kubernetes and cloud-native technology is changing the way that we do business. And in the first two episodes, we took a pretty narrow look at how that is happening in two specific industries. And in this final installation, we're going to kind of take a step back and look at the big picture. So if you haven't heard those first two episodes, definitely check those out on 5G and telco and on retail. And my guest today is Srish Raghuram, co-founder and CEO at Platform9, and has the perfect perspective, I think, for this final piece of the conversation. So before we get going, I'll introduce you to Srish, and then we'll dig in. So thank you for joining, Srish. It's an honor to have you and a pleasure. Before we start, could you just tell the audience a little bit about yourself, your background, and maybe just a quick overview of Platform 9 for anybody who doesn't know? It's a pleasure to be here, James. Thank you for having me. I'm a longtime engineer. I'm a one-trick pony, so to speak. Um, my career started as an early engineer at VMware in the early 2000s. And my first project there was to make Windows XP boot. Windows XP was just coming out, and it wouldn't boot on VMware Workstation 3 beta. Uh, so that's uh, where my journey with virtualization started. And the reason why I wanted to get into virtualization is because it allowed developers like me to play Windows games like Age of Empires on my Linux desktop, which was a very, it felt like a very important contribution to society <laughs> to be doing that. And then I got hooked. You know, I think VMware was just such an incredible place to be. The technology was fantastic. The engineers I got to work with, just incredible and uh, that's been my career. I was an early engineer there. I was there for more than 10 years. And I had the opportunity to meet uh, some other really smart people there, our co-founders at Platform9. Uh, Bickley was my mentor at VMware. He was a principal engineer there. Madhura Maskaski and Rupak Parikh were also very early engineers and senior technical leaders there. And over time, as we realized the importance of cloud computing, we realized that uh, the cloud was the future enabling developers with that paradigm that the cloud did, that was a, a one-way street. The world wasn't going back. And we believed that the cloud was the future. But we also believed that there needed to be a lot more freedom and flexibility in cloud computing. So we really started Platform 9 because we believed in, in the innovation that Amazon Web Services had pioneered and in empowering developers the way they did. But unlike Amazon, Platform 9's idea is about enabling that Amazon-like experience to be available everywhere. And we have this view of the world where uh, we think that the world is going to have reduced reliance on data centers, a lot of usage of public cloud, and a lot of usage of edge cloud environments, which is what we call distributed clouds. And we think that technologies, open source technologies like Kubernetes, are giving developers the freedom to consume these distributed cloud environments with a preferred consumption model of their choice, which is cloud. And so that's what we do at Platform9 uh, is enable freedom in cloud computing by delivering Kubernetes as a service for distributed clouds. So what I heard in there, and we're going to dig into this a little bit more later, is that one of the problems you folks were seeing on that path that you said was a one-way street is 
there's still silos in that paradigm, in that way of thinking. Even AWS in all its glory is at the end of the day, a silo for a lot of organizations. And what you're proposing is sort of one continuous way of running this infrastructure. So that's kind of what you set out to build. Is that a fair characterization of what I heard? Yeah. And James, it's interesting, right? You've obviously had a long exposure in this industry as well. And you hear the term hybrid cloud, right? And we've heard it for what, 10, 12 years now, more than that. From what I can tell, folks, there's no real hybrid today. You know, 12 years after that term, I think, has been around, people aren't really doing hybrid. They do an on-prem silo, they do an Amazon silo, and typically in large enough enterprises, there's not one Amazon silo. There's like many, many, many different Amazon silos. They're all, even though they're all in Amazon, they're all silos within themselves. Right. As a result, I think there's a tremendous amount of inefficiency in cloud spend, and there's a tremendous amount of friction that developers and operators have to deal with. You really don't get that promised land of the future of hybrid where you can get the freedom and the the speed and the efficiency of cloud computing, but you can get that with a lot more fluidity and seamlessness across all of your infrastructure environments that you may have. Even your different Amazon VPCs that you have is just not the case today. These are all highly siloed environments. And I think that's one big reason why containers and Kubernetes are really interesting is because they hold the promise of Uh, separating the infrastructure from the application, letting developers kind of consume cloud without really getting locked into the silo because your lens into cloud is these declarative constructs that the Kubernetes API exposes, right? And you can build your applications to those and actually build with the assumption that in the future, there'll be greater fluidity and seamlessness between how those Kubernetes API constructs are bound to underlying infrastructure, whether that is an Amazon VPC or an Azure cloud region or a Google region or an edge site or a data center site, right? It kind of frees developers from having to worry about all of that and says, build to this notion of cloud, which promises a lot more portability and flexibility in terms of how the underlying infrastructure is ultimately consumed. I love that. And it it is refreshing to me to take that honest look at it. And if you're listening, I would suggest that you consider that for a lot of organizations, they say we're doing this hybrid cloud thing or this multi-cloud thing. And for a lot of organizations, I think that is a theoretical idea that they like a lot. But at the end of the day, it's just a collection of silos. But let's move on. Let's talk a little bit about how we can sort of take some ground there. Suresh, your position at the company as CEO and co-founder puts you in a spot where you spend a lot of time customer facing, speaking with prospects and with platform nine customers. And so you have a lot of exposure to what's going on out there in the real world. So by way of getting going, I'd love to hear about your opinion of the state of applications in the enterprise. How are they building them? How are they running infrastructure? And of course, you folks have a particular paradigm on how this should be handled, but I guess I'd love to hear about both. What is the reality for a lot of people right now? And then we'll explore where you're proposing they could go. Yeah, you know, so it's a really interesting discussion, James. Um, I think there was a recent article uh, that came out uh, earlier this month uh, where Deepak Singh, one of the execs at Amazon Web Services, talked about how most people who are starting on AWS today are actually starting with EKS, uh, which is Amazon's Elastic Kubernetes Service. And he said that part of the value proposition for EKS is that it makes it easy. Uh, People don't have to deal with DIY Kubernetes and There is not a lot of value in running their own Kubernetes stacks. But what's interesting to me is that developers who are starting on Amazon today are choosing to do so with Kubernetes on Amazon. 
I mean, there's so many other rich services on Amazon. There's EC2, obviously. There's Lambda. There's you know ECS and there's Fargate. But developers are choosing to start with EKS. And what that tells me is that developers are really looking to build. It's what we said a little earlier, right? Just as Amazon, I think, abstracted traditional infrastructure approaches and gave developers a way to build modern applications uh, without having to you know, consume IT the old-fashioned way with true infrastructure as a service. I think Kubernetes is abstracting cloud and separating the applications from the underlying cloud environments and infrastructure environments by enabling this promise of freedom and this promise of portability and this promise of late binding, that you can build your applications to Kubernetes and at a future point in time, you or your IT operations teams can choose to bind that to an on-premises cluster or to an edge cluster or to a federated architecture with multiple clusters in multiple cloud environments. And it doesn't matter, right? Your application doesn't need to know about that and doesn't need to worry about that. I think that is really exciting. I see that as the big reason why there's so much interest around Kubernetes. Having said that, I think there's a lot of complexity because, you know, at VMware, the growth in VMware was really rapid and easy because you could get started with the applications that you had today. In fact, one of the early projects that Bic and I worked on at VMware was VMware's P2V product, physical to virtual product. And the beauty of that product was we'd have these salespeople who'd walk into a customer site and take like 10 racks of infrastructure and leave at the end of the day with one rack, consolidated it all into one rack of infrastructure running VMware. And the space and power coolings and the infrastructure savings was massive. And the beauty of it was it was all made possible by P2E, just taking a physical machine and imaging it into a virtual machine. And your application didn't need to change at all. VMware was a very disruptive technology. Virtualization, when it first came around, was a very disruptive technology in terms of the value that it provided and how it changed the management paradigm. But it did not require the application to be re-architected. And today, I see that as a huge barrier to adoption to Kubernetes in that we talked about how developers are using Kubernetes as the lens to cloud, right? And they're saying it enables late binding of my applications into a variety of infrastructure environments. But if you look at Kubernetes adoption today, it's still heavy and predominant, I think, in tech companies and more digitally savvy companies. And I would say that it's lagging in the mainstream enterprise with respect to where it should be, because the value and the power of Kubernetes is so, so high, but it's also very complex. And it requires you to understand, you know, there's a recent quote, I think, from Kelsey Hightower saying, to be able to run an application on Kubernetes, you need to encounter 12 API abstractions in Kubernetes so that the decoupling of applications from the underlying cloud comes at a cost, and that cost is complexity. That cost is understanding all these abstract notions like ingress controllers, right? Pods and services and selectors and labels and deployments and all all of these additional concepts, which are abstract concepts that developers now need to understand, operators now need to understand before they can get their app up and running. So that is an area that's ripe for innovation and how do we simplify and democratize Kubernetes so it's not just the tech elite, the tech coast, the West Coast, and maybe some East Coast companies that are actually adopting Kubernetes at scale, but actually how do we bring this to every company that's out there, even those that does not have a lot of cloud native talent internally, that's something that Platform 9 is working very hard on and I'm very excited about that. But having said that, there's just so much adoption of Kubernetes and distributed cloud environments across major industry verticals. Like if you look at the whole telco industry, there's a massive shift happening there towards containers, Kubernetes, uh, distributed cloud environments. 
If you look at the retail industry, I think there's a really large shift happening there as well, which is very exciting. And then obviously, if you go back into more tech-driven companies like media and CDN technology or SaaS, you know, large distributed SaaS companies, so large SaaS companies that sell to the global 2000, the Fortune 500, there's a lot of adoption of this distributed SaaS architecture there that are all adopting distributed clouds. Well, as an Iowan, I can say I really appreciate you trying to bring Kubernetes to the rest of us who are not the tech elite. So could there ever be a thing that is like the P to V for Kubernetes? <laughs> you know, we've talked about that so many times within the company. Uh, I think it's a really good question. I mean, you could just print money if you could build that. Yeah. <laughs> well, that would help. As a startup, we're always looking for ways to print money. But having said that, why I'm most excited about that is because I think this is a really, really powerful technology and there's a massive amount of interest, right? It's hard to have a conversation these days with anyone in the infrastructure space and the Kubernetes word doesn't come up. It's everywhere, right? In terms of interest. But there are these barriers to adoption that we talked about. Like to get an app up and running, you need to encounter these roughly 12 abstractions. That's a lot of learning. And it's not just about talent, right? Like developers are busy. Companies are busy trying to do everything else that they're trying to do and taking the time to learn all of the stuff. It creates a barrier to adoption. So I think, James, that's a really, really good question. And my answer is a yes and no, okay? Let me talk about the no first. I don't think there'll be a P2V for Kubernetes and containers the way there was for VMware because, you know, Bic and I were the people who built P2V in its earliest days at VMware. I can tell you that it won't be the same way. There's companies that have tried, like Azure has tried these build packs, which was interesting. Google has this Anthos Migrate. I think the problem with those is that it is extremely limiting and it's a very fragile approach, right? A technology that works 60% of the time uh, or 70% of the time, I think it's useless. James, if you're a CTO of a company and I come to you and say, hey, I have this idea for you, it'll work 60% of the time. You'll just say, get off, you know, don't stop wasting my time, right? I can't afford that. I'll reject that idea 100% of the time. That's right, exactly right. I think those are good, right? I mean, people are trying, right, to find ways to make it easier, but it needs to just work all of the time. I think an approach that we tried two years ago was actually serverless functions, so functions as a service. And what we found is that it gives you dramatically instant time to value. You can be up and running a Hello World application in your favorite programming language and be up and running in like five minutes with Kubernetes. Problem is, taking all of your existing applications and taking all the functions that are in those applications and porting it over to a functions as a service framework is even worse than trying to take your applications and port them into containers with Kubernetes. So I think, no, it won't look like the traditional way we did P2E for VMware all those years ago. But I do think the answer is yes, there is going to be a way. I don't have the answer for you exactly what that's going to look like, James, but this is something that Platform 9 is working on as well. And I think we will get there. We will find a way by which you'll be able to take most existing applications in the enterprise and port it over to Kubernetes a lot easier than you are able to today. And that's worth pursuing because it would democratize this new powerful cloud abstraction that has so much value, but it would make it so much easier for people to adopt. And I think there's a lot of pent up demand for something like that. It just needs to be something that works all of the time. It can't be something that works 70% of the time. Right. Agreed. Well, we'll check back with you in a couple of years on that. Less than that. Less than that, James. <laughs> okay. All right. 
You know, you, you've been talking about uh, people getting started in AWS and people getting started in Azure. There are certainly still companies out there, and I would suspect that actually the bigger they are, the more likely they are to try this, who try to build their own cloud and roll a Kubernetes infrastructure from scratch. When you see people attempt that, what does it look like? How long does it take them? How does it go? You know, it's very interesting when you see that happen. In many ways, that reflects, I think, the nascency of the Kubernetes market and the the adoption of Kubernetes technology. Because if you talk to a company, uh, they could be in an insurance business, they could be in the retail business, they could be in the financial services business, they could be a software company building, you know, desktop publishing products or building like office software or meeting software. Whatever it is that they do, that's really their core competency, right? And Using Kubernetes, using cloud technologies so they're able to better deliver those core competencies, absolutely no-brainer, right? Everybody should be doing that. But actually deploying and operating their own Kubernetes stack, which is, I think, especially in the software industry, I see a lot of people try to do that. It starts out because they start playing with the technology, right? If you think about the user's journey with containers and Kubernetes, they start out saying, hey, let me package an application with a container. Let me deploy a sample application let me take a small application that I could be building, a new application or an existing application, put it into a container. Then you run into this need for orchestration, right? The need to manage multiple containers and multiple machines and figure out a way for multiple developers to collaborate in a real, more complex application across all of these variables. That's the need for orchestration. Today, nobody questions the need for Kubernetes anymore. They all go look at Kubernetes. They deploy a Kubernetes stack. They'll either start on an Amazon or EKS or a GKE, or they will download an open source installer. There's a dime a dozen, right, of those. And then when you install that, they get up and running. And soon, instead of focusing on delivering your application on top of Kubernetes, a lot of these efforts get caught in the mud like a little bit, spinning the wheels, actually trying to operationalize those Kubernetes environments. I'll give you an example of just recent conversation around this, which was yesterday morning for me. And this is a team, it's a technology company, services many large, very well-known logo, very well-known name, trying to move to SaaS from software. They have large companies, so they have a mix of everything, right? They have all kinds of product lines and businesses. They want to move to subscription services. They want to move to SaaS. They sell to the who's who, the Fortune 500s, the global 2000s. So it has to run in different cloud environments. It has to run in their customer environments as well. And about a year ago, they got started with an open source uh, installable Kubernetes version. I met with them last year and they reached out back to us again this year and we had this conversation again. And how many sites do they have up and running? None, zero. How many production instances do they have up and running? Zero. I mean, that is just unbelievable to me that a tech company with a lot of talent can spend a year and not actually get something out in production. And the reason for that is because they're kind of trying to reinvent cloud. If you're trying to operationalize a Kubernetes platform across multiple environments, you have to realize what you're trying to do. You have to step back and understand you're trying to build a Kubernetes-based alternative to Amazon Web Services. And that obviously that's what Platform 9 does. So this is very self-serving for me to say that. But the question that I have to ask is, is that your core competency? And if it's not, you should go look for someone else for whom this is a core competency, who have that alignment with the vision that you have in terms of the use case that you have, and see if they can deliver to that. Because I think a lot of companies are losing time and wasting an opportunity cost to get their products to actually be running on cloud native 
because they're spending all their time dealing with the plumbing of cloud native as opposed to actually running on top of cloud native platforms. Yeah, and I think another thing that can happen there is when you don't know what you don't know, it seems like it's not terribly difficult to paint yourself into a corner when you're architecting a Kubernetes stack. Because as you mentioned, a lot of this starts as a science project might be a little too harsh, but you know, a proof of concept kind of thing. Somebody might use an installer that does a, a very simple deployment that works for the POC, but doesn't scale to uh, be production ready. And then they got to start all over and it's just a bit of a mess. And you know, I don't have any investment in saying this. I don't see why start over when somebody else has done that for you. It seems like just a good way to wind up banging your head against your desk. So you've mentioned a couple of times a term distributed cloud, and I know that that means something special to you. I'd like to hear about what is, what is this notion of distributed cloud and what does that mean to the customers you're speaking with? Yeah, it is a term that's very near and dear to my heart because um, the founding idea of Platform 9 was that there should be freedom in cloud computing. Uh, and what we mean by that is that you should be able to consume cloud on your terms. You as an end-user organization, whether you're a tech company, you're a financial services company, you're a manufacturing company, it doesn't matter. You should be able to consume cloud on your terms, right? Cloud should be available for you where you want it to be available. And it should expose the experience that you want, your developers want, to be able to build and run applications as easily and as quickly as possible. It should work for your infosec teams and it should work for your, your IT operations teams. And if you look at the public cloud model, they've obviously pioneered this new operating paradigm for how you operate cloud services, right? That to me is a big innovation behind Amazon Web Services is not the individual services. Because if you look at EKS, EKS is basically Kubernetes delivered as a service. Every Amazon service looks like that, right? EMR is Hadoop as a service and they have a version of Elasticsearch, which is Elasticsearch as a service and so forth. What's to me powerful about Amazon is the underlying platform, that management plane that they have built, which allows them to connect infrastructure that Amazon Web Services is running for you with consumption by developers and applications at massive scale. So what AWS does really well is connect infrastructure with consumption at massive scale. And the insight that we had behind Platform 9 is that there are many, many companies, like if you look at the telco industry, you look at the retail industry, you look at the even SaaS companies today like that sell to large enterprises, they're having to adopt a more distributed architecture. Uh, so it's not like the centralized model of SaaS that we've seen for the last five years. I think it's a more distributed tiered SaaS, whether it's operated as a service, it's built as a service, it's paid as a service, but it can run sometimes in a certain region, in a certain geography, in a certain environment that the customer wants it to run on. And that idea of being able to combine the value of the cloud with this freedom to run it on any infrastructure that you have, whether that is at the edge, whether that is in multiple cloud environments, or whether that relies on some data center capacity, I think is really powerful. And that, to me, goes back to the core of our mission, which is freedom in cloud computing. And that use case of running in this distributed architecture is what we call distributed clouds. And it's helpful to visualize what does a distributed cloud look like, because Hybrid cloud, that term, it was very confusing because all of the traditional infrastructure vendors started marketing to it and nobody could really understand what is really hybrid anymore versus not. So I'll give you some very specific examples of what a distributed cloud looks like to me. And we should talk about like the, the 5G rollout that's coming. We should talk about like the retail experiences. So if you 
use a quick service restaurant, the Chipotle's, the Starbucks, and the Panera Breads of the world, or use like retail. Like if you go to a Lowe's, a Home Depot, you go to a Target, a Walmart, you go to a Nike, they're going to be relying on a more distributed version of cloud computing. And it's really fascinating to talk about that. So let's do those because I want to hear all about them. Let's start with 5G. Obviously, things are being shaken up in the telco world by 5G rollouts. That's requiring very different stuff from an infrastructure standpoint and from a 5G application standpoint. From your perspective, what's happening in the telco world right now? What was fascinating to me, James, coming from a virtualization background, right? We've been doing this for 20 years now. It was shocking to me to see how little the use of virtualization is in the whole network infrastructure space, right? If you look at the telecommunications service providers, they're pretty early days yet uh, with virtualization. There's industry dynamics which have contributed to that. There's a, a finite number of suppliers who supply the kind of equipment that these communication service providers use to support like the 3G network and the 4G network and the 5G network. And these networks themselves are rolled out and they last like a generation, right? I think 4G has lasted roughly about seven years or so. I think 3G before that was about six years. So they don't just go and roll out new architectures in the midst of a generation, right? Every generation tends to be a step function in the advancement of the underlying packaging of the technology. So if you look at what a telecommunications network uses, it uses radio networks, uh, which is ultimately how our cell phones communicate with the telecom networks via the radio towers. It uses a transport layer and it uses the network core. And so what's really happening is that these components, the core, even the radio network in 5G for the first time is actually being virtualized. Uh, starting in about 2017, the 3GPP standards body started to use containers and specifically Kubernetes as standard approved ways by which this entire industry can package the technology that is used to support the core network functions and the radio network functions. And what that means is that as these network providers are getting up to roll out like 5G networks this year, next year, and the year after, they're all going to be using Kubernetes for the first time. And in many cases, that's actually going to be the first time that that function has been virtualized. For example, the radio network. In the 4G world, there was very little, almost no virtualization of the radio network out there. And because this virtualization is happening now in 2021, and it's all happening on containers and Kubernetes, and because it's happening in the telecommunications network, it means that it's happening in a distributed fashion. So there's these regional data centers that exist in major metropolitan markets in the country and internationally. And then the radio networks are further dispersed from there. So this is not at all a centralized cloud data center model. It is actually a regional and a distributed cloud architecture with Kubernetes as a cloud platform running on infrastructure that are distributed across tens and maybe hundreds of sites. And that's a very specific major market that's using distributed clouds at scale. I think within three to four years from now, there'll be millions of servers that are running Kubernetes for distributed clouds to support the 5G network. And that to me is incredibly exciting. Before I dig into the specifics, you mentioned that it's just becoming very distributed and lots of nodes. Let's talk a little bit about retail. So you mentioned the Chipotles and Starbucks and Paneras of the world. Obviously, those examples, they have thousands of stores, I don't know, lots, and each of those stores has to be supported. What's happening in the retail space that's related to this? Yeah, tens of thousands of stores. And what's interesting is that 
one of our retail customers, uh, without naming them, in March of last year, the pandemic hit. And there used to be a company that used to do 95% of the business in store, and maybe 5% of their orders were being placed online as of the start of March 2020. And within three days, their government issued a lockdown. It's a European customer. And, you know, as the pandemic spread in Europe, if you remember the scary times in Italy and so forth at the early days of the pandemic, as the country went into and European governments went into shutdown, lockdown, they had to keep essential services up and running. And so this was an essential service. And within three days, their pattern flipped from being 95% in-store business and 5% online to 100% online in three days. So people would walk into the store and they would have an order that they placed online and they would be fulfilled in the store. But even something as simple as that, where you're buying online and you're picking up in the store actually requires software integration, software components. There's production systems, there's inventory systems that you reconcile with the actual inventory in the store. When you have a problem, you have to actually reconcile and help diagnose where is the order and why is it not there? Is there a different supply unit and so forth? So there's all kinds of software systems that go into supplying something as simple as that. And then we haven't even talked about the more emergent retail pattern, right? Which is a lot of the quick serve industry, I think, has this dream of a touchless store experience where you can walk up to a store, you can enter the store, it would recognize you and it would pull up your favorite orders and it would make it really easy for you to order. Or another example that we're working on with a few prospects in the space is you're pulling up at a drive through and think about how often this happens, right? Like humans being creatures of habit. Let's say when my family pulls up at a McDonald's, there's a very specific order that we're usually doing because we're, you know, binging out on fries while we're driving on a road trip, okay? And so you could recognize our car's license plate and you could probably make it easier for us to order as opposed to the whole menu that you tend to have. Our family tends to order a certain specific variation. Or if you look at my coffee, it's always ordered a certain way. And God forbid you are the barista who had to fulfill Madhura Maskaski's coffee because she tries to concoct this Indian chai version. And I'm like, you know, Mother, that's just not fair. You're giving somebody like a coop cuddle level API of how to make your chai, you know? So imagine that as a customer shows up in person or at a drive-thru, you can recognize them and help make the ordering experience so much more seamless, so much easier for the the server to fill so much easier for the customer to order. And imagine not having to pay. Imagine that you just drive off with your drink because they looked up your account, they looked up your credit card information, they have it on file. Doing all of that requires the use of software that can process a visual of a person or a license plate and can recognize that, can map that to an account. So that has to now work with a backend system to look up your account information, look up your preferences, look up your payment information and make that seamless. This requires cloud infrastructure, but it can't just be cloud infrastructure that's running in the cloud because you're pulling up at a drive-thru at a Starbucks or a McDonald's and you have maybe a minute, maybe 20 seconds sometimes to go from there to the pickup kiosk. You have to compute that pretty quickly. You can't afford to take the round trip, think about the latency, think about the delays and think about the expense of computing it in the central place as opposed to doing it in a more federated distributed architecture. So I think that we're actually seeing a renaissance in retail because the retail industry has obviously had its difficulties with COVID. But on the other hand, they've kept us all going. You know, we as consumers, we can buy our coffee, we can buy our groceries, we can buy our essential supplies and live life as if nothing really changed because of what the retail industry has done. And they're increasingly driving software products to help improve the customer experience, make it more seamless, make it more touchless. 
And to do so across tens of thousands of stores nationally and certainly internationally, you're going to essentially see tens of thousands of clusters of compute. And again, being 2021, these are all going to be Kubernetes-based clusters. You're not going to run this with VMware. VMware was never designed for that. It was designed for a data center. And the cloud is a central entity, right? Like even though they have tens of sites, it doesn't work at tens of thousands of stores scale. So Kubernetes is a cloud technology that you can actually use to bring this distributed cloud architecture to actually serve customers in the retail industry more easily, more seamlessly, more quickly, and help improve the customer experience. That's all incredible. And it amazes me that we're able to do that. As a former practitioner, the thing that terrifies me about that in both the telco use case, and now you're describing this sort of uh, revolution in retail, and I would say Kubernetes at the edge, what terrifies me is the ongoing management and maintenance of those systems. Because you said there's going to be thousands or tens of thousands of nodes and thousands of clusters. Man, that sounds intimidating. So what does that look like when we get to that kind of scale? What are you seeing happen there in terms of challenges? And then I think that'll be a nice segue into talking a little bit about what you're doing at Platform 9. You said it really well, James. Like, look, you can muscle your way and you can kind of script your way using open source tools to run one, two, three, ten sites. So if all you were trying to do was stand up like a Kubernetes cluster and do some small application prototyping or in a data center in a cloud, you can do it, right? But if you had to support thousands of sites, uh, hundreds of sites running mission-critical software, like if, if the Kubernetes cluster misbehaves, essentially customers won't be able to make calls. And telephony today is an essential service, right? I mean, there's 911 calls that we all, I think, make through our cell phones. Nobody uses landlines anymore. So this is mission-critical stuff, right? So your Kubernetes cluster downtime is going to have a significant impact on some committed SLOs to end customers. It's just not going to be acceptable. Or imagine driving up to your favorite quick serve restaurant and saying, oh, we aren't able to take your order because our point of sale system is down because the Kubernetes cluster's etcd failed over. That's just not going to work, right? So you need the cloud SLA. You know, in the early days of Amazon, people used to kind of poo-poo Amazon's SLA, but we always believed that Amazon was actually doing a really good job delivering a great SLA for their service. That kind of SLA, where the cloud is something that you can take for granted, it's like electricity, right? You can take it for granted and it's always available, it's always on. That is the SLA that needs to be available, but at thousands of stores. If you're the CIO of a retailer, you're not going to invest in that digital transformation initiative if you don't believe that you can do that on a robust cloud platform across your distributed environment, right? So it's table stakes. Distributed clouds, there's massive demand because of these industry dynamics between retail, telco, and others. But in order for that demand to be realized and and successfully met, you have to get carrier-grade distributed cloud infrastructure, right? You have to have a Kubernetes dial tone that never goes off. And that's essentially what Platform 9 does, right? Our superpower has been, we've had this contractual SLA that's actually an industry first, and even today it's the best in the industry, where we commit to our customers the SLA for the availability of the Kubernetes solution that's being delivered by Platform 9, because we deliver Kubernetes as a service and not people-managed service, but really operated by SaaS, the way Amazon operates their services. Unlike Amazon, we make that available for you to use with your choice of infrastructure, wherever that may be, at the edge or in cloud environments or in the data center. That's why we're able to deliver that SLA. And 
you know, we are contractually uh, live with production deployments in some of these telco and retail use cases that we talked about. So I can tell you for a fact how intense those SLA discussions were. And it's really our value, you know, the, the fact that we can give you the dial tone for you to be able to innovate with confidence on top of cloud technologies like Kubernetes. So first, I want to talk a little bit more about that Kubernetes as a service offering. I want to understand the architecture and how it's used, the customer's experience and that sort of thing. And then before we go, I'd like to hear a little bit about your thoughts on where we're headed. What's next? What does the future look like? So let's start with the product itself. Platform 9 managed Kubernetes from a end user's standpoint. What does that look like? So Platform 9's managed Kubernetes looks a lot like an EKS or a GKE, but with a lot more freedom and flexibility. So what that means is, if you go to our website and you were to try out Platform 9's product, it's completely self-serve. You can just sign up and try it by yourself. You don't need to talk to anybody. When you sign up, what's happening behind the scenes is that a dedicated management plane is being spun up for you. Our customers all get their own dedicated management planes that actually runs on our own Kubernetes architecture internally. So it's Kubernetes all the way down, James. And so in our Kubernetes architecture internally, there is a namespace which has sprung up, which has a management plane that is provisioned just in time for a user who signed up and said, hey, I want some managed Kubernetes from Platform 9. That management plane is dedicated to that customer so they can isolate it from the rest of the network. They can bind it to their own identity provider. They can bind it to their own policies and so forth. And that management plane serves as a central operations dashboard from which they can operate their distributed cloud environments, be that in their data center, be that in their VMware environment or on bare metal environments, be that in the edge, like in retail stores or in telco sites or in CDN sites or in the cloud environments. They can bring their own VPCs under management. They can bring their Amazon VPC, their Azure cloud regions, their Google cloud regions under management. We are agnostic to where the infrastructure is. We're in the business of helping our customers get that dial tone for Kubernetes on top of whatever infrastructure they want to use and giving them that carrier grade SLA so they can innovate on top of Kubernetes. So that's the product that's centrally operated and managed makes it really instant to get up and running. You can pair it with your infrastructure within minutes, wherever that may be. And everything from bare metal to VMware to cloud regions, we work with all of it, right? So that's the product. And look, in terms of the future, I think for the last 10 years, it's been about the adoption and acceptance of cloud as the de facto developer experience and IT management paradigm. I think that the next 10 years are going to be about the proliferation of cloud, right? So now developers go cloud first, right? Every developer does that. It's rare to find developers who don't think in cloud terms today. I think the next 10 years are going to be about proliferation of that cloud from being limited to the central large uh, sites that you have today to actually go wherever the users needs them to go. So to all these new use cases, such as the retail use cases we talked about, like the 5G use cases that we talked about. And the 5G use case in particular is very exciting because once the networks themselves are running on containers and Kubernetes to support the network, you can imagine that those endpoints, those regional data centers and those radio towers themselves can also become more intelligent because they're running Kubernetes. That means that in theory, you should be able to run application software there as well. Imagine that you were using a gaming system like Pokemon Go. It should become a lot easier to build applications that do 
latency sensitive uh, processing peer to peer processing like geospatial processing uh, augmented reality processing because they can work with cloud which is now a mile from where the customer is a user is or in the same store or in the same block as opposed to the centralized notion of cloud so to me it's very exciting to think about what new kinds of applications will be built when cloud goes from being the centralized entity to being this distributed entity that is available in every block in every metropolitan region and that enables a whole new class of applications where the latency of traditional cloud architectures makes it impossible to build those so i think that is worth pursuing and it'll be a very exciting uh, wave of new applications that i'd love to come back and talk to you about james in a few years absolutely i was just going to say that i've had the opportunity to interview you every couple years for the last little while and it's fun to hear where we're at and where we're heading and i will absolutely check in again in a little while and see how that pdv for kubernetes thing is going and um, all of the uh, kubernetes stacks running up the block it's an exciting place that we're headed um, really interesting changes coming almost to everything Srish, as always, super pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for doing this. It was great to have you. Thank you for having me. For more information or to connect with our guest from Platform 9, head to platform9.com, where you can also register for a free trial and download more helpful resources. If you want to learn more about Kubernetes, download the Guerrilla Guide to Kubernetes Operations at platform9.com. The link will be in the show notes. If you liked what you heard here today, be sure to hit subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode. You can also leave us a review on Apple Podcasts to help others find the show. Until next time, thanks for going Inside the Guide.